Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change a Recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Loblassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Claudia Christian. Claudia is the most recognized global advocate for the Sinclair Method, a treatment for alcohol use disorder, AUD. In 2013, she started her nonprofit C3 Foundation to help raise awareness of the treatment, which saved her life in 2009. In 2020, she was the driving force behind C3's launch of YourSinclairMethod.com to provide individuals on TSM with support from experienced coaches and the release of Journeys, a collection of stories from people on the Sinclair Method. Claudia has been in the film and television business as a performer for over 35 years. She is the author of two autobiographical books, My Life with Freaks and Geeks, 2010, and Babylon Confidential, 2012, and the sci-fi novel Wolf's Empire, 2016. In addition to her nonprofit work, Claudia still appears in TV and film and lends her distinctive voice to the award-winning audio series, and Manx, Disney's Atlantis, and some of the biggest games in the world, including Skyrim, Guild Wars 2, World of Warcraft, Starcraft, Call of Duty, Halo, and Fallout 4. She recently completed the first season of Netflix's new animated series, Gods and Heroes, and Dota. Claudia currently has a recurring role on the Fox series 911, playing the captain of the LAPD. Woo! That is the resume. Wow. What an amazing woman. Claudia was absolutely a delight. And she really sold me on the Sinclair method. You know, I'm really about people getting help any way that they need to, whatever works for them. And the Sinclair method is something that I did not find out about until late in my career in the mental health and substance use disorder space. So I'm really excited for you guys to learn about the Sinclair Method, what that can do for people, and the ability to bring choice back into drinking for some and to extinguish the need to drink for others. The Sinclair Method is basically a way to extinguish the desire, the urges, the cravings of alcohol use. So you take a naltrexone pill an hour before you plan to drink. You wait that hour, then you drink the alcohol and you do not have the same cravings. You're able to put it down. You don't have to finish the glass, the bottle, and it changes the neural pathways, the habitual pathways that you have formerly created back into more moderate use pathways. I'm doing a terrible job of explaining it. She will do a much better job. So please join me, Sinclair Method expert and actress and woman in recovery, Claudia Christian. All right, episode 66. Let's do this. Claudia, welcome to The Courage to Change. Thank you so much for being here. 
It's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you, Ashley. Really excited to have you. So you have an amazing background uh, doing, we were just talking about this, doing voiceover, but you have a laundry list of other things that you've done, including your documentary, One Little Pill. Correct. Yes. I've been an actress since the early 80s. So, okay. Uh, okay. And a voiceover actress uh, probably since the 90s. And um, and then I've been in the world of uh, alcohol use disorder since uh, 2009. So I'm it sounds like the the acting was like the preparation for like yeah. The, the, yeah. no, you know I don't have I mean I have a lot of uh, hashtag Me Too stories, but I don't think that was the uh, the, the the real crutch that that sent me into my own substance use disorder but you know my my career is something i i value and i think that the experience has been amazing so i i have nothing to really complain about my hollywood story i chose it and it's been very good to me i've seen the world i've met amazing people and uh, I still continue to work at my ripe old age. So it's great. You know, <laughs> I love it. I love it. What are you, do you currently live in California? I do. I live in Los Angeles. Yeah. Awesome. But you yeah. grew up in Connecticut. I grew up in Connecticut. My dad is, was in the oil business. So um, he, we, we moved to Westport and Western Connecticut and I lived in Houston, Texas for a while. And you know, we moved around quite a bit, but I came back to California when I was 14 and um, we lived in Laguna went to high school there, left high school early and pursued my acting career. So I was in Los Angeles at the young tender age of 16 and on TV by 18. So and I got my first what, series. You were in Laguna, Laguna uh, Beach High School and Laguna Hills High School. Both yep. Yep. Okay. I'm, I'm, I won't give my address away, but I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm near uh, Laguna Hills High School. Um, oh, okay. I, yeah. I was just there for my birthday uh, Monday. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I went back to Laguna Beach. Boy, it's changed in 40 years. (laughs) Boy, it's changed. Yeah. um, So what was it like? What was your childhood? Like if you, when you describe your childhood, what was that like? Well, I think growing up in, in that era, uh, and especially in the, near the woods in Connecticut and having more simple, you know, people always say, Oh, the good old times. Well, the simplicity of, I guess you would say friendships that were made organically really, not the same pressures that kid, kids have, not access to pornography and things like that. So I would say that there was a modicum of innocence there in some shape or form. But we had trauma. My brother was killed when I was eight. Uh, he was 14. That destroyed our family. So that was really, I would say that that was the turning point for everything. My other brother witnessed it, and that affected him extremely adversely. So he also turned to substance use later in life. And I think that there was a lot of unresolved things. You didn't have therapy for kids in the 70s. You know, we just brushed it under the carpet. And then my parents slowly grew apart. And and we were isolated, not knowing how to really deal with the death of a sibling and a violent death at that. So it, it really was not. I think that 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 definitely had a profound impact on all of us uh, emotionally. And I think we all turned to whatever it was as a coping mechanism. For me, I developed, a, a, I, I had very bad OCD as a kid. I was a counter. And that's something that I've really 
uh, looked into over the past decade of working in the addiction world is that a lot of people who have OCD and also eating disorders, I became anorexic as well, um, have a tendency to slide then into alcoholism or, or, or drug addiction. And it's, it's, it's really, and by the way, the vernacular, I'm sorry if I offend anybody, I use everything from alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, uh, misuse addiction. I, I use all the words because, um, I think the message is what's more important than the the, the, the verbiage. <laughs> so I apologize if I offend anybody, but I, I just speak from the heart. So I think that 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 was definitely uh, a trying time. But for me, when we when we finally got trans, my father got transferred to California, I saw it as sort of this beacon of hope because I had been performing on stage for so many years and I and I really loved it. It was the only time that I could feel in control, I guess. And by that point, the OCD had drifted away. I had not developed an eating disorder yet. So I was sort of in a safe place on stage. I could be heard. I could make people laugh. And it made me feel comfort. It made me feel, I guess it was escapism. I, I really think that that's what it was. It was escapism from from the trauma that was undealt, not dealt with. And when I came to California, unfortunately, we moved into a house next to a, a a pedophile. So I was uh, at that point raped continuously for about a year until we moved away from him. So that I'm sure contributed to other issues later on in life. And once again, never, never dealt with it, never found a good therapist, never did anything like that. But then I moved away again. I was always running away from, you know, running away from death rape or and and so I ran away to Los Angeles and I found a manager who kept weighing me and and always was on me for my weight so then I started you know starving myself and but I got a series so that was a reward you know reward for being skinny you know so and I was making money and I was getting my own apartment and my career was taking off and I started getting movies and you know it's just that vicious cycle of of, of never quite, you know, in hindsight, I'm 55. Now I look back and I wish to hell that I could just hug that little girl and tell her what to avoid, what to do, how to cope, how to, what friendships to pursue, how to speak to her parents, you know, all of that stuff that, that of course, hindsight is always clearer. So, but I, you know, I, I think also it makes you who you are and it makes me extremely compassionate to people who are misusing substances now. And I think that not having gone through that journey, I wouldn't be, of course, where I am today and able to give back to, to people and society. So the pain, you know, I say this all the time, I would not change having been an alcoholic. I wouldn't take that back out of my life because it's given me a life that's beyond my, beyond joy. You know, much, I mean, I, my father said it so succinctly in my documentary. He said, no Academy Award could ever equal saving a life even one life. And, and, and it's, you know, it, it's true. It just, it makes you feel like you're here for a reason, not doing something superficial with your life, you know? And, and that's, so that's pretty profound. And did I go through a lot of pain to get there? Yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, I'm not going to lie, man. It was a tough ride, uh, through the, um, recovery world and just, feeling such guilt and shame and stigma and feeling horrible about myself for so many years that boy it is a process and i wish that everybody comes out on the, in the happier end of this and that's my whole goal is to ch try to avoid that decade of absolute agony of trying to really find your way through the recovery world and find a treatment that works for you yeah wow so i mean so much there i when so i want to go back a little bit to 
your brother. Your brother, there was it was a violent death. Was whatever he was involved, was he involved with something that affected you up until that point, right? Because no, he he was killed by a drunk driver. Ironically, he he was crossing the street on a on a properly on his bicycle, and the other my brother was with him and tried to comfort him in the middle of the road because he was a boy scout. He was taught never move somebody who has a head injury and another car came. Yeah. And ran over his head and almost killed my other brother as well. So. Oh my God. When your parents moved you guys to Laguna um, or you went from Connecticut there to Laguna, right? That happened in Texas and they immediately transferred us right back to Connecticut. And that was six weeks. Yeah. So we went back to Connecticut and then we went to Laguna Hills what did they say to your, how did they support you guys in this? Like what? Nothing. I mean, it, it, I don't, I really do not. I was, I had three older brothers. So the youngest one and I were stuck at home and then they put us at their neighbor's house waiting to find out what all this trauma was going on. So I was eight and he was maybe 12. And then somebody came in and said, Oh my God, you know, uh, some kid's head was smashed and, and then, and then the, my, I saw my mom come in with my brother's bandana dripping with blood. And then that's, that's pretty much what I remember. And then we moved and we went back to school and people made fun of us. Ah, your brother's dead. You know, that was, I mean, it, it's just, there was no sitting down and, and talking about what just loss no, means. Yeah. No yeah. therapy, no guidance counselor, no, nothing, not one adult just saying it. All I saw was my father. I'd never seen my father cry. I saw him on his knees, throwing up on the lawn and my mom just on her knees, holding a bloody curtain. I mean, it's like a movie. It's like cinematic trauma. It's like, I, 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 and those images are so ingrained in my brain, but no, there was never anybody that said, let's all just sit together. I think, uh, I, I think we had attended a church briefly in Texas. We had only been there like two months and I think a priest came by at one point, but they, you know, he talked to my parents. Nobody, nobody took my other brother who witnessed the whole thing into therapy immediately. He should have immediately been speaking to somebody because he was, think about the guilt of not dragging him out of the middle of the road. I can't. I, can't. I mean, how do you live with that? You're, you're 13 years old. You're going to live with that for the rest of your life? No, it, had, it, it has just destroyed him. No, I mean, no, he's still alive, but he struggled immensely with substance use disorders immensely yeah, yeah. how yeah, overachiever you, I mean, classic everything yeah and look at all of us classic overachievers we have a genetic engineer with a phd in physics who's a master builder now we have a veterinarian we have somebody who tried to you know hollywood it was on tv you know movies uh, i mean and 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 have to write books have to always fill your life with so much achievement you know because because we're avoiding that that internal struggle of I'm sure we're all stunted at the age when that happened, and I'm sure I'm stunted at the age where I was, you know, repeatedly raped by somebody. I'm sure I'm 14 in my body, you know. That's, so that's that happened after so you went back to Connecticut, and then you went to uh, Laguna. Mm-hmm. We moved to a place called Nellie Gale Ranch where that occurred, and and then. Uh, and then a year later, we moved to Laguna Beach where things finally settled in. I had a, a wonderful um, guidance counselor and I went to her and I said, look, I know I'm 15 years old, but I'm 40 inside. I'm, I'm, I want to have, a, I want to get out of here. I want to work. I've already got a bank account. I've changed my name. I, I'm ready to leave. Can you get me out of high school now? And she was so sweet. She said, honey, 
I would never do this for a kid, but you are a 40-year-old trapped in a 15-year-old's body. And she was this wonderful, just so much empathy and, and concern for me. She allowed me to work three jobs, uh, including in the school office. And I got a drama scholarship, which I actually never used. And then um, she got me my GED when I turned 16 and I was out of there. I was out of there and I left. It's amazing. You know, um, there's a book, I don't know if you've, um, The Body Keeps the Score, and it's uh, it's an incredible book about trauma and it talks about what happens in the brain of a traumatized person. And it is Un, it is unbelievable what how much chemistry neurochemistry goes on and one of the things that's that um i was i'm rereading it and one of the things that it talks about is they've done experiments which i won't tell you about cuz i'm glad they got the information sorry that they did the experiment but about people who had trauma where they couldn't leave the situation so with your brother that was a traumatic that was one a, a huge traumatic event but with you you had that. And then you also had the ongoing abuse, this ongoing sexual abuse and how that changes the brain of someone when it's something is ongoing and they can't go anywhere. They can't leave. They can't escape. And it actually down regulates because you have to figure out a way to survive the situation. Why do you think, and have as someone who went through uh, sexual abuse with a neighbor at much younger age, but same similar situation. But I think a lot of people don't understand why a 15, 14 year old girl would never say something to somebody. Why? why and, and I know why. That, <laughs> yeah. You know, why? I know. <laughs> why I know didn't why. you say something? I didn't say something because I was told that I looked like a whore if I had shorts on. So, and, and if an adult tells you, you look like a whore and then somebody rapes you, you feel like you deserve it because you look like a whore. And mind you, I mean, when I say that, you know, I was a skinny little 14 year old that wore shorts, I didn't have lascivious shorts on. I had a pair, a pair of shorts on and a tank top, like a normal kid, you know, And, and no boobs, you know, I was tall and skinny, but that's, that's, you know that, and you're budding. You know, you're confused already with the new hormones, and and you're you're physiologically changing, and it's and it's it's a scary time. Plus, you're new in school. You have all these insecurities, and you're starting to wear makeup, and you kind of want attention, but then you know you get the wrong attention, and it's you know there's it's such a complicated thing. And if you don't have a, a really strong parental guidance at that point both of my parents were not only moving tremendously away from each other but they also they also were were super infused with their own needs and desires in life and work my mom was working I was a latchkey kid my dad was working my mom was working you know so there wasn't that structure that family structure no there was very little communication that's something that I've I've never had good communication with anybody in my family. That's just, we're not a family of talkers. We're a very stoic sort of like, you know, carry on. Um, my mom is German. My father was Irish. And so I never really felt comfortable approaching my parents because there was a stoicism about their own experiences. For instance, my mom lived through World War II, I mean, as a child and was raped and, and lost, you know, 
friends and relatives. And so that was an extreme version of trauma. And my dad was sent to military school at the age of like five. I mean, his parents were never around. So both of them had such difficult things to overcome themselves that I just sort of felt like, well, I should handle it the way they handle things. And I'll just keep it to myself because I felt shame. And I felt, you know, I felt that it was partially my fault for roller skating in the neighborhood in shorts. I mean, seriously, it's like, you look back now and you're like, no, it's not your fault that, you know, for wearing a pair of shorts. It's, it's a person with, with a real problem. And I should have reported it because the man had a, a little girl. He had a daughter that was about three when he was doing this to me. So it always later on in life, I felt really, really horrible about it. And I, I did come out to my dad when I was just when I was moving out of the house and moving up to Los Angeles, we were in a screaming match and, and he was, you know, saying, if you're going to be an actress, you're going to, you know, you're, get out of here. And, you know, cause, cause he just wanted me to go to medical school or whatever, you know, like the boys, he wanted me to get a prof- a real profession as he put it. And I, and I just came out, it just came out of my mouth. I said, and you didn't even protect me when the guy's name was raping me and his face. I mean, he just dropped, he got a gun and he got in his car and he drove to the guy's house and the guy wasn't there, but his wife was there. And my dad burst through the door and the woman looked at him and said, I know why you're here. (gasps) Is that, is that, is that I talk about? Yeah. I know, I know, I know. But once again, we didn't talk about it. My father passed this April on April 24th this year, and we still had never talked about it. We still, I've, I've never sat down with my either of my parents and just said, you know, I think that may have had something to do with, you know, some of my actions later in life because I denied it. I had always believed that addiction was completely biological and that this has nothing to do with it. Childhood trauma has nothing to do with it. It's a biological aspect. Your brain changes. You have the genetic predisposition. I had grandparents on both sides that were alcoholic. So clearly that's why I I became alcoholic. I mean, but you're not actually wrong, which is that your brain, so there is a biological piece to it. And when you have massive trauma, your brain changes. Yes, exactly. And 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 becomes susceptible. So, I mean. Yes, you can, you can cross hatch it in any way, shape or form, but I'm sure the trauma contributed to it. The brain changes and also having the genetic predisposition drinking before my brain was fully developed. Cause I started drinking as a, you know, I was in a European household. I'm sure I had wine at like nine. So in engaging in that behavior over and over again, I learned the behavior, but you're right. But I'm sure due to trauma, those, those, those biological changes in my neural pathways made me far more susceptible, you know, and it's, that's why I love, I love the whole idea of pharmacological pharmacological extinction and medication assisted treatment, because you can actually see in brain scans, you can see the difference between a pre pre Sinclair method brain and a post Sinclair method brain when somebody has reached what we call extinction. And you can see that the neural pathways have reduced the, the neural pathways that are strengthened from endorphins that are released by alcohol are now they've gone from super highways down to little country roads. It's just phenomenal. I mean, science is, is well, it's God. <laughs> That's yes, yes. Well, it's God. I, I love that. Yeah. I love that. But you, you, what's interesting about, and I want to get into the Sinclair method and, and all that, because I, as someone who got sober, you know, abstinence based AA treatment, I have lots of questions 
so you at 20, in your 20s, you were a light drinker. In your 30s, you were a social drinker. But by the time you were in your 40s, you developed alcohol use disorder, which I think, you know, I've been hearing, it's not my experience. And, and you know, the drinking for me was, you know, the eating. And then for me, when you were describing the OCD and the eating and then sliding into alcohol, I, I remember thinking to myself, yeah, because alcohol is so much easier. You know, you just you switch into alcohol. It's so much easier than being OCD or being having an eating disorder, whichever direction you go. Alcohol is like, oh, I'd rather do this. Jeez. It's a no-brainer. Yeah. yeah. And count, right. Counting yeah. calories or counting bricks oh, yeah. in a building. I mean, yeah. Yeah. No, you're like, get me drunk. This is, you know, this is just the way out but we, what, you know, as I, I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss, but you know, you always, you, you take out the alcohol, guess what's still waiting for you. How did you not slide in? How, how, how did you make it through uh, your twenties and thirties without having alcohol use disorder? And then it came up. Work. I was, I was working. I mean, and, and vanity because you can't be puffy on camera. A, 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 a good director of photography can tell in a second, if you drank the night before, they can see the puffiness around your eyes, no matter what age you are. So, and I learned that very early on. And I, I really valued my work. And I also think, you know, I was, I was married very young. I married an older man who wasn't a big drinker. When I was 23, I got married to him. And I mean, for a, a, honestly, a big weekend of drinking was us splitting a bottle of wine on a Saturday night. That was a big that for me was like, wow, we split a bottle of wine. I mean, and he, I'm sure had more than me. So I was just not, it just wasn't in my, yeah, it wasn't in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, Alcohol just wasn't interesting to me. Cocaine was because it kept me, kept me skinny, you know, and then once in a while I would, yeah, once in a while I would have (laughs) to, um, have to use alcohol to bring me down from the cocaine. And then, then when I stopped doing blow to keep my weight down, you know, I just, once again, I was really busy. I was living with partners that weren't really, that weren't alcoholics. Uh, it wasn't until I was in my thirties that I lived with someone who was a regular drinker, a really big drinker. And so I started getting in the habit of drinking with them, you know, nightly, if I wasn't working the next day, and if I was working the next day, I wouldn't drink or I'd have a glass of wine. So I wasn't abusing it yet. If that's right. Yeah, right, right, would, right. Okay. I would say that I would abuse it when I went to, I did, used to go to like Renaissance fairs and stuff with my friends and we would all drink all weekend. So I guess that is considered abuse, but it was isolated incidents like that. It was, or like Halloween, you drink too much. New Year's Eve, you drink too much. So I was still in my mind, a normal drinker because I was drinking exactly like everybody else at that age. And then it, it didn't escalate until my mid to late 30s and when I started collecting wine. And then I kind of started gaining weight. And my family and friends started saying, you know, you, you drink a lot. Or somebody would say there's a lot of bottles in the recycling bin. And that's when I decided, I said, well, uh, oh, and my boyfriend at the time said, you're the fastest drinker I've ever seen in my life. Because I could drink like a mimosa in two sips. How did you feel about that? Because I would feel very confident and very um, flattered by that. Were you the kind of alcoholic? (laughs) Like in your life ever? Like that's a real, you should tell someone about this. Or were you like, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. No, I I, I was actually kind of self-conscious about it. And I realized that they were right. And I 
did the logical thing. I, I stopped drinking and I just said, I bet I, I'm going to show them. It was like an F you, I suppose. It was like, a, oh yeah, you think I have a problem? Watch this. And by quitting drinking, I caused what I now know is the alcohol deprivation effect. And that's when my brain was starving for alcohol because I was feeding it alcohol five, six times a week, you know? And so when I subsequently, I guess you would call it a relapse, when I went back to drinking, I became a binge drinker. So I went from a a light drinker to a normal drinker to a social drinker to a five times a week drinker to a binge drinker. And that was a profound change because binge drinking was not only adversely affecting my health, but it was something that I couldn't control at all. I mean, I had gone from somebody who could say, okay, I'll take a night off. And it wasn't a problem. I was not drinking during the day or in the morning to somebody who had a really serious alcohol use disorder. And that just went lickety split from, okay, I'll quit to I've now relapsed and I'm a binge drinker. And that means four or five days out of my life, I am doing nothing but drinking. And then I'm recovering for two weeks. And so that was the scary thing. My life then at that point, and I believe I was about 38 years old, my life my life from that point was broken down into how many relapses did I have this year? And so that happened until I was about 43, I guess, in 2009 when I found the Sinclair method. But so, so for that amount of time, five years of my life was literally broken down by, uh, and as a little interesting segue, every single relapse was when I was PMSing. So there's a hormonal, hormonal connection as well that I, especially in coaching women for the past 10 years, I found that postpartum, premenstrual, uh, menopausal, perimenopausal, oh my God, this is like, this is when you drink. This is, I, I, yeah, I literally tracked every single binge and it was every single time I started drinking when I was PMSing. It, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And they've just come out with a paper recently about the hormone connection with women and drinking just finally recently. So anyways, so, so yeah, so I, I was basically relapsing like maybe, I think I, the most I ever got was 10 or 11 months under my belt of sobriety. Were you, so so during that five years, did you go to treatment? Oh yeah, I did. Um, I did AA in multiple different meetings. I did um, one rehab stay in a place where, which was just a joke. I mean, it was it was really it was really silly. I did um, cognitive behavioral therapy with a therapist who never worked with addiction, which was really stupid to pick her. I did um, hypnotherapy. I did vitamin therapy. You name it. I mean, I, I I did any anything that I that I that was accessible at the time that I had heard of. And when I was in treatment, nobody told me there were medications. They just wanted me to sit and talk about my feelings all day. And I, and I, I I I could feel. I knew exactly my body. I was the three month honeymoon period of sobriety. I was literally a three to four monther. And after three to four months of sobriety, after a binge, I would start to crave and become mentally obsessed. And I knew that that was coming. I just knew it was coming. That was my time frame of beauty, as I called it, like my honeymoon. I was in the pink cloud of sobriety and everything was great. And I was determined and motivated. And then the obsessive thoughts would click in again about drinking. Oh, I can't go there because I could, oh, I can't, I can't see that person because maybe they'll drink. Oh, I smell alcohol. Oh, I, I can't go down that aisle in the supermarket because there's alcohol. And, and even though I was sober, I was a, I was a dry drunk and I hate that term, but I mean, I was just obsessed with, with alcohol, whether I was drinking or not. 
And I knew that I couldn't live that way. I knew that I couldn't see a life of me being constantly still obsessed with the thought of drinking, regardless of whether I was drinking or not. I mean, besides the white knuckling, I think it was just the mental obsession. And that's what drove me crazy. I could not focus on my life without always thinking about booze. And it was just... That's the part that, that's the part that just sinks you. That's the part that just sinks you. And that, I think that is why, and with whatever obsession it is, the counting, the eating disorder, the alcohol, like you are so, it's so um, loud in your head. All consuming. It's all that you can't do anything else. So you might as well drink. That's how, or you might as well eat, or you might as well insert whatever count. You might as well, like it just, it just gets to this place where you're like, I can't go on normally, so I might as well just shut the voice up. The problem is that it shuts it up for that short period of time and then it amplifies it, right? So, of course it does. You yeah. Know? I mean, if you finally relent and wash your hands for the 90th time that day, you you're, you have a, a moment of relief while you're washing your hands, but then it clicks right back up again. You got to wash yep. your hands again. You know, it's, yep. I mean, yep. whatever. It, whatever. Yeah. Whatever. And with booze, it's worse because it releases cortisol. So then you're, now you're feeling anxious after the alcohol wears off and you need another drink and then your tolerance is raising. So you're rising tolerance. And now you can tolerate so much booze that it's this vicious circle of now you need a drink every 20 minutes. Now you need a shot every 20 minutes because your tolerance is so high. And the second it starts to wear off, you start to feel withdrawal symptoms, which is anxiety and stress and, and and you can't function. And then you get to the point where I got to the point is literally I could not function without alcohol in my system. I would start to go into major withdrawal. That's where you get the handshakes and the horrible. I mean, oh my God, when I, it's so weird. I was thinking about it the other day and I thought it's almost like it was a different person and it is a different person. It's a person who has been taken over and hijacked. Your brain is hijacked. Your body is hijacked by this entity, which is addiction. And nobody else can understand it unless they've actually experienced the feeling of of looking down on yourself and seeing yourself stealing alcohol from your local store. You are a grown-ass woman who is a professional with with everything to lose, and you're putting a a bottle of beer in your pants. I mean, who does this? Who does this? I mean, and and then you drink it in the car and you throw it up because you're so poisoned. Your body's so poisoned. And then you drink the second one to keep it down. I mean, yep. you know, yep. it's mouthwash, <laughs> you know, vanilla extract, uh, anything, mixed, people, any rubbing alcohol, people drink, you know, I oh mean, my God. Yeah. It's, 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 I, I love when you say that because my, you know, you've probably heard this before, but so I thought I may be possessed. So that was like, I was like, maybe I'm possessed. Like maybe I, you know, no, of course I'm not going to say that because I don't, you know, then I'm like, great. I need an exorcism. Like, like, look, I've really gone and done it now. I need an exorcism. But one of the things that was for me, when I figured out that I was an alcoholic, it was such a relief because I thought I was going to end up being committed. I really, I was like, there is something in me 
that is not right. And the other thing I was, I thought that I might be schizophrenic because yeah, I, ha- I it had, makes you. yeah, because I had voices and I mean, they weren't like voice. They were, they were my voice. It was my voice. It was loud. And it was, it was, um, my, my, um, sponsor's husband calls it K fuck radio in your head. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and it's loud. And, and I remember finding out this is what alcoholism was and being relieved that it wasn't something I was going to need electroshock therapy. Oh yeah. I mean, I was like, I'm going away. I can't tell anybody about this. I'm going, they're going to put me somewhere. Do you know how many alcoholics are misdiagnosed as bipolar because they're in the throes of alcohol? Yes. Me too. I, I, but I was, they put me on, although they, I was a teenager, they put me on lithium because, but I was detoxing from cocaine. I couldn't tell them about that. But I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm up and down because I'm drinking and using. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then and then when you're high, I, my family all thought I was bipolar because when I was in the midst of a drinking binge, I would be, you know, effervescent and high and fluid and talking a lot. And then when I was, of course, sober, I'm my normal kind of shy self with strangers. So they thought, oh, she's definitely something's wrong with her mentally. And I tried to explain over the years, no you're seeing somebody in the throes of alcoholism. That's what you're seeing. Highs and lows, highs and lows. I'm not bipolar. I have never had a, you know, never, it's, it, it, but that's what people think because you, I'm sorry, I, I don't want to use that word, but you're acting crazy. Right. You're, oh no, you're legitimately, you're, it's not logical, but it's so, I mean, it's really, it's, you know, I think every, every alcoholic, every person who's really been in the throes of it, when you say like, you feel possessed, you feel taken over, you feel like that is real. You really feel like you're a different person. And, and I hallucinated it. too. Yeah. Yeah. I and totally people, hallucinated on my, on booze. People yeah. see us that way too. Yeah. You know, the Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, like that whole, that whole thing. And so when, so you, you go in and out of different types of, of programs. And then you find this, how do you, how do you find the Sinclair method? I went to, um, in 2009, I was coming off of a, a really bad binge and I did what I always do, which is cold Turkey. And I started to, um, stroke out sort of at home. I couldn't, I couldn't move my, I couldn't get dressed or anything. So I called a friend and she took me to a medical detox, which was my only medical detox that I've ever done. And it was horrific. It was so awful, demeaning, horrible. They eventually gave me a medication to bring me, you know, to stop shaking. Cause I was literally like, I mean, I, I couldn't even hold the pen. It was so bad. And they finally hours later gave me a medication. And, um, I guess it was, must've been Valium or something. And I totally sorted me out. I mean, had I known then what I know now, I would have kept a penitent in the house and I would have been fine, you know, you know, or something. And I would have been absolutely fine through my withdrawal or I would have tapered off alcohol, which is far safer, you know, but, but instead I just went cold Turkey and it was, it was horrible. I didn't know any better. (laughs) Think of all the brain cells that were killed anyway. So, uh, on my, I checked myself out immediately because I felt a hundred percent better. And, and I'm a cockroach. <laughs> so, you know, like, they gave me one Valium. I was like, okay, I'm sorted. I want to go. Yeah, home. right. So I, I was not going to spend the night there. So I checked myself out. And um, and on the way out, I grabbed a whole bunch of flyers because I was just desperate for maybe there's something new. 
And one of them was the shot for Vivitrol. And I took the pamphlet home and I read it and it said it would get rid of cravings. And so I called the treatment center back again. And I said, you know, I left a message. They didn't answer. And I said, I wanted to get that shot. And it was really expensive, but I thought, you know, I, I was desperate. I was, I, cause I knew what was going to happen. I would stay sober for three months and then I would go right back to, and this one, this time I would die because this was such a bad relapse. So I started researching cause they did not call me back. It was almost divine intervention. It was weird. They never called me back and days went by and I thought, okay, this is, I've got like three months to sort this because I know I'm going to relapse again, maybe even sooner. So I, researched Vivitrol. I found out it was naltrexone. And then I researched naltrexone and up popped a book called The Cure for Alcoholism. And I'm like, yeah, right. Cure for Alcoholism. <laughs> Dr. Dr. Roy Escapa. And I thought this is a load of horse donkey, you know, and, and I, and I, uh, I clicked on it and they had a couple free pages to read. So um, I started reading it and I said, oh my God, this is, this is, this makes total sense. I, I come from a family of researchers and physicists and, and I just thought, you know, this, this is science and it really makes sense. So then became my hurdle of getting naltrexone. And that's when I called my GP and I said, you know, I need an appointment. I went down there with uh, the book that arrived, you know, I got the book and I said, here, I, I, I want to try this method. And he just looked at me and said, I'm not prescribing you an opiate. You just go to AA. And I said, it's not an opiate. It's an opiate blocker. He said, I don't care what it is. You don't exchange a medication for a, a drug for a drug. And I was like, it's, it's not addictive. You, it, it's not fun. <laughs> and I was trying to explain to him what this was. I said, it's, it's, it's not, they already use it, but they use it with abstinence. And I just want to do, do this. And he said, I'm not giving it to you. So I ordered it from a pharmacy online. I had never done that before. I put my credit card in. I thought I was going to be arrested. I thought, oh my God, this is illegal, but I was so desperate. Right. Six weeks later, it still didn't arrive. So I called this pharmacy in India and I'm crying on the phone going, this is a life or death situation. You know, I'm crying. I'm literally screaming at them. It's been six weeks. At this point, I'm starting to feel the cravings kick in and they apologized and they said, we'll get another package out to you. And then that, that next day, the original package arrived at, at my box and I was feeling like, Oh, thank God. So I never forget this. It's so funny. I've lost so many memories due to drinking in my life, but I never forget this. I picked up the package and I went to Trader Joe's and I bought a bottle of red wine and I was eating meat back then. So I bought a steak. I was PMSing and I bought that little, that stuff. And I had not had alcohol in my house for eons. And I went back to my house and I literally just said a prayer and I made myself dinner and I took the pill. I waited an hour, just like you're supposed to. And I felt really weird. I felt spaced out because my body was so clean and I felt kind of loopy, but I just persevered. I started eating my steak. I poured myself a glass of wine and I, I couldn't even finish it. I, I drank like maybe an inch and I thought, okay, that was weird. Uh, maybe it's a placebo effect or something. So I'll just, just, you know, say whatever. I had a really bad night's sleep from the medication that night. And then the next night I didn't feel like drinking. And then the next night I did feel like drinking. Um, so I did it again with the same bottle of wine so that I had poured it back in. Now there's still like what, three quarters of a bottle at least. I drank like nothing, like a little inch of it. So I poured another glass of wine, the same bottle, and I drank that and I drank a second glass. And did you take the medication? Yeah, no, of course. Yeah, yeah, I took yeah. the medication. I waited an hour. I did the same routine over again. 
took the medication like five, had a drink at 6 p.m. I did it fastidiously because I was so concerned that this would, I would spiral into a binge, that it wasn't working. So I did it again. I drank two glasses of wine and I honestly didn't want anymore. And I thought, well, that's amazing. There was still wine in the, it left in the bottom of the bottle, which is unheard of. I mean, I, I never had a half empty bottle of wine in my home for years. So I put the bottle back in the kitchen. And then the next night I took a pill, waited an hour, and I finished that bottle of wine. And that was it. And then I didn't drink for like a week. And I thought, this is just too good to be true. And it kept improving from then. You know, I would go out. I, I was really careful. I mean, I had, I had like my pills everywhere in the wallet and the this and the car with my friends. I mean, I was paranoid and I just cautiously kept, you know, just thinking to myself is, Oh my God, I have control, which is so weird. I have control. And I wasn't really thinking about, you know, I would, I would plan it. So yes, I was thinking that, which is much falls into anorexia and OCD. I was planning every, every drinking a session, you know, like, oh, okay, Thursday night, I'll allow myself to take a pill. And I'm sure that was feeding the addiction in my brain as well, because hiding is a thrill, planning is a thrill, all the all the mechanisms of the ritual of using any substance is a thrill, the wine glass, the opening of the cork, that all releases endorphins and dopamine. So we know that. But at the time, I didn't know I was just so thrilled that this was working. And it was about three, three and a half, maybe four months at the most into using the Sinclair method that I had my big aha moment, which I talk about my TEDx talk, which was, so there was a billboard in studio city that I always drove by and I had this big glass of red wine on it and a steak and the glass of red wine would always make me think I have to have a drink of wine. Or if I was sober, I would think I can't have that wine and it would upset me. And this one particular day after three or four months on the Sinclair method, I was driving down and I looked up and my brain said, that's a billboard, nothing else. And I literally pulled over and I started to cry because I realized my brain was fixed. It, it had no impact on me. I didn't, I didn't crave. I didn't get stimulated. I didn't get angry. I, it was just a billboard. And I knew at that point, I just was weeping in my car. I knew I was better. And it was such a, it was such a profound moment. I, I couldn't stop weeping because I felt like I was, I had an off button again. I, I was back. Uh, Claudia was back. I was back in, uh, in the driver's seat and I was back, just back in my body. And that was when I really decided if I don't talk about this and if I don't do something about telling other people about this, then I'm not a worthy human being at all. I, I don't deserve to live because it was so such an impact and such a miracle. I mean, it was like, going from having this beast, this possession, as you call it, in your body and being possessed and suddenly it's gone. I'm free. Now, if I don't tell other people about this, that that's, that's just not, it's not fair. And I thought, well, there are people coming out um, as addicts, as actors and actresses, and maybe it's, it's okay. I knew I would be judged. I, I knew that I would probably lose some jobs. I knew that I wouldn't be considered for things if I came out. And I also knew that I would be thought of as a lunatic because this is something that nobody had heard of. And if it was that easy, you know, if that was, oh, if you could just pop a pill, we wouldn't have any addiction. And I knew all of that was coming. And I also knew that the 12-step the, the community that I had left would attack me because it's, it's they, you know, trading a drug for a drug, which it's not in any way, shape or form, but that's a very easy way to. And also it's completely counterintuitive to tell an alcoholic to drink. I get that. Right. 
Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hi, this is Ashley Lowe, Blasting Game. I am here to tell you that National Online Recovery Day will debut this year on September 22nd. In celebration, Lion Rock Recovery is sponsoring a live sober influencer panel on getting clean and staying connected. Join me as I moderate an hour-long interactive discussion with three prominent panelists live on the Lion Rock Recovery's Facebook page, September 22nd at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Mark it down. Visit www.nationalonlinerecoveryday.com for more event details. For people who don't know, tell us what the Sinclair, so you've sort of described it, but can you tell us I say, you know, Claudia, what's the Sinclair method? The Sinclair method is the targeted use of an opiate antagonist or opiate blocker in order to unlearn addiction in the brain. And how does that work? I'll take you through the layman's terms. So every time somebody with an alcohol use disorder drinks, they are reinforcing the neural pathways in their brain by it's, it's a reinforcement and a reward because when we drink alcohol, the endorphins are released. The endorphins then cling onto the opiate receptors and they make the neural pathways more strengthened. So if you have an opiate blocker in your system, like naltrexone, nalmaphene, naloxone, which is used for overdose from opiates. So if you've got naltrexone, nalmaphene is the sister drug that's used in Europe. You know that. Yeah. Oh, I know about Narcan. I had a Narcan. Yeah. Yeah. When you have an overdose. Not a a good time. (laughs) No, you go into complete withdrawal. It's very dangerous. That's why people who are uh, using opiates can't use the Sinclair method. If they're if they have a coexisting disorder where they're addicted to opiates, they will go into full withdrawal by popping a naltrexone. So you've got the naltrexone in your brain. I I, I talk. I, I like to tell people it's like a condom over your opiate receptor. So you've got your condom on, and now you're drinking, and these endorphins are being released, and they're literally bouncing off the opiate receptor. They they cannot adhere to it because you you covered it with a condom. Your condom is naltrexone. So what happens? Well, you drink and you're not getting the reinforcement, the reward. You can feel relaxed and you can taste the alcohol, but your brain is missing something. And so what does the brain do? The brain learns to unlearn the behavior because it's not getting the reward. So why would you do something continuously? Why was your your brain is very smart, obviously. It's like Pavlov in reverse. You keep ringing the bell, but you're not feeding the dog. The dog is going to stop salivating. So if I keep drinking and my brain is not getting the reinforcement or the reward or the endorphin release, then why should I keep drinking? You become disinterested. I like to tell people, you don't give up alcohol. Alcohol gives you up. So that's, that's what happens on the Sinclair method is slowly but surely you start to drink less. You start to think about alcohol less. You obsess about it less. And now that I know so much about it, I, I also change their behavior at the same time. There's no more hiding. There's no more lying about alcohol. You're drinking out in the open in front of your loved ones. You're tracking your drinks. You're, you're keeping a drink log so you understand units. You are also accountable You're also hopefully doing some coaching or some therapy and changing your life habits. Because if you take Papa Naltrexone and you're still drinking out of the same glass and the same chair, watching the same Netflix show, you're not changing your habits. And once you have more time on your hands, if you've been on the Sinclair method and suddenly you've got all this time on your hands because you're not getting drunk every night, you need to have things to do. You need to start new hobbies or old hobbies. You need to change 
change your life. You need to start working out. The wonderful thing about TSM is it's a dual therapy. So on the days that you do not drink and you do not take naltrexone, if you engage in good endorphin producing activity, like working out or making love or eating spicy food, playing with your kids, animals, being in nature, you get so much more reward on those days because your brain has been blocked by, by the days that you've been drinking on naltrexone. It's in your body for good, you know, 10 hours. So on those days, your endorphin levels have been blocked from the alcohol and now your, your brain is kind of starved for it. So if you go on a beautiful walk or jump in the ocean or make love to the person you're with or eat a beautiful meal or cook or, or play an instrument, you're going to feel high in a good way. So it really is a, a dual therapy, which is something I didn't understand in the beginning when I was doing it. I was just fastidious about compliance. And I will touch upon something that is it's extremely dear to me. The reason why I always tell people it's it really is if you don't comply, if you don't treat this like your life-saving medication, you will relearn the addiction. I did in year six on TSM. I relearned it like that, like like one week and I was re-addicted. So you are not cured. That's the one thing about that book that I wish they would have changed is the title. You are in remission. You are in remission as long as you comply. There is no cure. It will be a little little thing in the back of your brain that if you feed it alcohol unprotected by naltrexone, that thing will grow again and you will become re-addicted. It may take you a day, it might take you a year, but you will become re-addicted. So I have a question about that. So is the goal, so are, when you do TSM, the Sinclair method, are you able to drink moderately? So when you say year six, does that mean six years without drinking or six years drinking normally? Like a normal person. I For six years, I was able to go travel and remember the trips because I would have one glass of red wine in Italy. I was able to go to France and remember and drive the whole time because I would have one glass of wine at the end of the night, maybe three days a week. I was a normal person again. I, I, I didn't abuse alcohol. Uh, that, that I was back to my 20s. I, I reverted back to the behavior of my 20s as long as I complied. And I, and I was very good about compliance until I wasn't. <laughs> you know, that was the grand, grand poobah of it. From what did that look like? That looked like uh, me losing somebody very dear to me and not coping with it, going straight down to the bar and ordering a drink without taking my naltrexone and within relearning with relearning the behavior. And yep. and in you know within a week, what did it look like at the end? I of the was week? on a Mr. Tote's wild ride binge, and then I crawled out of that and went back on TSM. And then in 2018, I just stopped drinking altogether because just hormones and age, and it just wasn't offering anything to my life anymore. Having that choice was like, okay, you proved your point. You have a choice, but are you happier without it? Absolutely. Do you look better? Absolutely. Do you sleep better? Yes. You don't, you don't want to be going through menopause while you're drinking alcohol. It's just, is not smart. And I will tell any woman that it screws up your circadian rhythms. Your sleep is going to be so messed up. And I'm talking about even infrequently. I mean, you know, I, I, I was seeing somebody who was in AA for 20 years. So it wasn't like alcohol was around me, you know, but I once in a blue moon to take a pill and go out. But even that was like, you know what, I, I, I've done it to death and it's just not bringing anything into my life. And I feel so much, it was sleep was the biggest issue. Uh, to be honest with you, it changes. Even drinking once a month will change, will screw you up for days. 
And it's, it's, that's just a fact. And now that the more I study brain chemistry and neuropathways and, uh, you know, it's, it's just a fact that, that, that alcohol or any other drug really messes up your sleep and sleep is vital for your happiness and your health. So it's, it's more important to me to just get great sleep than it is to be able to have a glass of wine at, at an Italian restaurant. It's really not, not important to me anymore. Right. Right. What I was... have chocolate. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And seriously. Now I've, now I've parlayed my addiction into uh, a British Cadbury chocolate addiction. <laughs> There's going to be a new method for that. I, you know, it's funny. I was thinking that I was like, I wonder if it works with sugar. Uh, it actually does work for sugar, but it, but you have to comply to the TSM uh, methods. Yeah. 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 So as, as a member of, you know, 12 step program, someone who was kind of raised in that, you know, I can, I, I know exactly what people would say about it. And, and for me, my belief system is we came here cause we had a problem and we were looking like, it depends what your goal is, right? Like, like AA works, 12 step works, you know, if your goal is to be abstinent and to well, go ahead. Sorry. This works for, I'm sorry, this works for abstinence as well. In fact, oh, about does. 40, about 44% of the people, 45% of people go abstinent on TSM and some of them miraculously quickly. The difference is, is they go abstinent because they are no longer interested in drinking. And so I, I, I like to lose my coaching clients. I like to lose them because when I lose them, it means that they're just done with alcohol and they have no longer need for coaching. They don't take the pill anymore because they don't drink anymore. So what's the point? It's behind them. What about the P? Okay. So for me, I don't think about drinking every day anymore either. Um, I've been sober 14 and a half years. And Congratulations. Thank you. But the crazy brain piece is, <laughs> is it's still there. Uh, I can, my husband would attest. And how one of the greatest gifts I've gotten from, from recovery, forget what kind of recovery, forget, you know, it doesn't matter what pro- program you're doing, but from recovering is the mental support, the community support, uh, the mental support, the ongoing um, self-exploration and accountability. One of the things that I, when I look at the Sinclair method, the way that you describe it, and someone says, I'm just not interested anymore, that's great. But to me, for my life, I would be missing out on so, so much if I had just been uninterested anymore because of what I've had to do to stay sober. What do you What do you think of that? I I had this um, I wouldn't say argument, but this discussion with uh, on the Larry King show with the actress. Uh, uh, God, I'm forgetting her name, Meredith Baxter, who's big in the twelve step community, and she said, "Well, I wouldn't have." She your words exactly. There was so much I wouldn't have gained in my life without the twelve step community, and I said that's totally understandable. If you are a what about everybody else? Surgeons, police officers, lawyers, people who cannot come out, first of all. And second of all, what about people who are strictly biological? What, what about people who have a beautiful childhood and a perfect marriage, but they became addicted due to neurology, to biological aspect of it? What about the rest of us who don't want to carry on saying, I'm an alcoholic for the rest of my life? I want it to be behind me. I don't believe I'm an alcoholic anymore. I'm not drinking and I'm not thinking about alcohol. I don't want to label myself. And what about the fact that you can combine them? 
What if I say to you, to somebody who's a chronic relapser going into the rooms, chronically relapsing, and instead of being filled with shame, I can give them medication, send them back in the rooms in three months or four months from now because their goal is abstinence. And AA states the only neat thing you need to attend a meeting is the desire to stop drinking. So this person has a desire to stop drinking and they're on a medication to get rid of the cravings and suddenly they get rid of the cravings and they're free. And they're still getting the support of AA in the community. What's wrong with that? And if somebody wants to go to meetings and they want the camaraderie, we have seven meetings a week online. We have seven Facebook pages. We have online forms for people on TSM. We have coaches. We have a whole coaching page. We have telemedicine companies throughout the entire United States offering comprehensive programs with cognitive behavioral therapy and medications. And if naltrexone doesn't work for you try something else it's what i believe in is everything i believe in it all if aa works for you fabulous if baclofen worked for you wonderful if naltrexone with abstinence works for you i'm thrilled for you what i don't believe in is a my way or highway attitude about any treatment for any substance use disorder because that is an archaic standpoint and it's also barbaric and it is inhumane because not everybody is helped by the current paradigm period if they were helped by the current paradigm and the current offer offerings we wouldn't have deaths progressing at a rapid pace we wouldn't have substance use disorders escalating especially during COVID-19 during this time you know who's winning the alcohol companies are winning there was literally an out article I read this morning celebrating the fact that they've never sold so much hard seltzer in history. That is not something to celebrate. People are coping the best they can, but they're coping in the wrong way. They're using alcohol to try and de-stress and it's a vicious circle. And you're going to see so many people coming out of this thing, fully addicted, fully addicted. Oh, yeah. and, it, and it is already, shocking. We already are. We already are. And, and it is shocking. And who's going to monetize that? alcohol companies and rehab facilities. All I'm here to say is there's another option. That's I'm not I'm not judging anybody's way of recovering. I'm simply saying it is their right to know every single option, every medication, every therapeutics, every rehab everything. We should all be enlightened and educated. Yes, I agree. I 100% agree and I I I do agree with you. I here's my one piece is that I think that people sh- I think that that as long as you you be one uses their alcohol problem or whatever insert whatever problem to gain coping skill new coping skills new habits to look inward then it's it and 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 obviously it, in terms of you know w- making their life more manageable with the actual substance my piece is the one place that there's one outcome that I think is good, I don't think it's optimal. And that one outcome that's good, but in my opinion, not optimal, is simply stopping and not doing any internal work. That That's the only one that I, where I say, yeah. you know, you got there for a reason. Of and course. I don't care if you, I, I don't care if you have to go meditate in a forest, you go to church, you sing Claire meetings, you're coaching, whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, AA, AA had to work for me because I was going to die, but I didn't believe anything that was going on. I just didn't have a choice. Like I literally, and kind of like you talked about, like I, there were no other options and I, I took what was there 
I was so miserable. I took what was there and I, you know, they say like, take what you like and leave the rest. And I did that. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about with the God stuff. I don't care. Fine, whatever. And I took what I could and I reinterpreted it for myself so that I could get through it. And and then it became whatever for me. I've been, and and so I totally get I mean, I, I relapsed many, many times because I was like, I'm not doing that shit. So I totally get it not working for everybody, it not being the only option. Completely understand that. The only place where I say to people is, it's so important to do some work, whether it's, you know, any kind of support. That's the piece that I just harp oh, on. We see, we see tremendous results with people who combine it with anything from coaching to cognitive behavioral therapy to psych- psychotherapy. But let me ask you this. Wouldn't it be easier to listen to your therapist and really, really hear what they're saying if you don't have cravings? Oh, absolutely. So I, so, I think so, that medication and, for cravings, I think that, you know, Vivitrol and, and those types of things, uh, I, you do, okay, I will, I will outwardly say this. And I actually have a guest coming on to talk about their journey with Suboxone. I have a hard time with Suboxone as a lifelong um, as a lifelong medication. However, if my child... Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Right, right? Yeah. look, I'm a heroin addict. I didn't have Suboxone, blah, blah, blah. But if my ch- if it was the difference between my child being alive or dead, yes. I would sign up so no freaking fast. <laughs> yeah. It, you know what I mean? So I, look, I, I guess I just would say I, I wouldn't normally think it would be first resort. I would think it would be more of like a last resort thing and um, to see if someone can, can develop coping skills without it. But I would, you know, if it was my child, I would jump on any bandwagon that would save their life. I would have no stance as long as it helps them live. So I know that. And I really do think what you're telling people and going out and telling people about this option is so important because I had never heard of it. I had never heard, no one ever told me. And granted, you know, I'm not none, you know, that didn't make a difference for me, but I do think that having these options, knowing all the different ways we can save lives, different things work for different people and different amounts of brain trauma, different amount, different levels of traumatized people are going to have different outcomes in terms of this stuff. Like certain brains, you take away all the substance. There's so much damage from the trauma. They may need more help than someone who had less trauma. Absolutely. And I always, you know, as I said, the statistics show we've done casual research. So anecdotally, people who have support do so much better. And that's on every level. People who have family and friends, loved ones, people who do attend our meetings, everybody does better if they if they're accountable and they and you also have to be motivated. If you're not motivated to take the tablet and wait an hour, then I can't force you to do TSM. This is not for somebody who whose wife is sending their husband to me. I can't force the husband to do TSM. This is somebody who's tried everything else, who needs privacy in their treatment. Uh, you know, there's certain types of, of personalities that work really well with this. Some people who who look at it so like a scientific experiment. You know, they take the pill and then they they start taking guitar lessons. They they join the the class the, the court the classes that we have. They they get a coach. They really they keep their drink log fastidiously and and they're on a mission 
they are motivated to, to decrease and then maybe even stop drinking. And those are the people who do really, really well. But once again, you have to have the motivation. If you don't comply, this ain't going to work. It's like, it's like, it's like an AA. If you, if you don't show up, it's not going to stick. So you have to have people who need it. It's not for people who want it. It's for people who do it. Exactly. So this is the exact same thing. And I strongly urge people to get help at the same time. You don't just pop the pill. That's not what I'm advocating. The pill will help you lose the cravings and the desire. But of course you have to discover why were you drinking to that extent? And and, and it's not just because Uncle Charlie was an alcoholic as well. It, there is a combination of factors that you need to address in your life and you have to change things. You have to change your friendships. You have to change, put, you have to put boundaries up as a woman you, and a man, a youngster. You know, I, I deal with people, youngster, that's a funny word. I deal with people who are 20. They have to be able to say, to their friends, look at this is my boundary. We don't need to do activities that involve alcohol every time we get together. And these are all things that you learn and grow. But in the meantime, I want to get rid of that obsession in their brain. I want them to stop thinking about booze and having that 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 alcohol control their lives so much. And so in that regard, it helps. But yeah, by all means, everybody needs a comprehensive program to deal with this because it is it's it, it is a comprehensive issue. It affects you holistically. <laughs> holistically, it's everything. Everything. You need to you need to love yourself. You need to you need to really understand your relationships, your triggers. That's another thing, is it triggers, you know. If you don't understand why you drink around your mom, well, you better find out why. You better dive deep and 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 really understand why. Because even if you do get the control of the drinking under control, you haven't dealt with the reasons why you drink around her. You know, <laughs> right? Exactly. Exactly. What what is what about Vivitrol? So with Vivitrol, they give shots that can last a month and help reduce cravings. How is that different? Totally different. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. It's, it's completely different. First of all, um, I don't, I don't advocate Vivitrol. It works for some people, but, um, I think it's very expensive and I don't like the idea of the medication being in your system 24 hours a day because then you can never do the dual aspect therapy of it. You can never go for a long walk and feel natural endorphins. And there has been some research, I'm not going to quote anything, but there's been some research that indicates some people get depressed by having that in their body all the time. So I think Vivitrol's had an issue with that. But um, hey, if it works for somebody, God bless them. I, I have I have two two former patients that ended up having to get the shot and they take the shot because they didn't trust themselves to comply. And then, and then what they do is they take an additional tablet before they drink. So they've got Vivitrol in their, they've got naltrexone in their body all the time. And then they take another targeted dose an hour before they drink alcohol and it works for them. So you know what, whatever, whatever works for you. I mean, some people have to get the implant because they just, they cannot adhere to the method, which is to take the pill before they drink. It's the same with antabuse. I remember they gave me antabuse and I thought, and I read all the side effects and I was like, this is the stupidest thing in the world. It could kill you. So I just didn't take it. Well, that's what I you know, always yeah, wonder. You know? <laughs> I mean, so, you know, cause it's not going to fix me. It's just going to make me sick. But, but if you want me to take a medication, that's going to fix my brain. Now that makes sense. I don't want punitive action. I don't want to be punished but and get violently ill and maybe ruin my liver by taking something that could kill me. I mean, nobody's ever died taking naltrexone. I mean, it's like, you know, it's not an addictive substance. It's it's something that's helping your brain unlearn something that you've learned. So that just right. made so much more sense to me. Antibuse was like, I threw it away. It was $300 prescription. I just chucked it. Oh. it was, uh, yeah. I know. 
that I, I always think when I heard when I first heard about the Sinclair method, I was like, well, why would I take the pill? You know, but again, it's it's about your motivations, right? It's like what you know because you don't want to you don't want to get drunk. You want you want to you want the. I, I tell people it's your freedom pill because a lot of people are so harped up on, oh, I, I just want to be, I just want to be able to have a, a, a tequila when I go to Mexico. Okay. If you're so romanticizing, you're still in ro- in the stage of romanticizing alcohol. Okay. I was even in that stage of romanticizing it, but I want to have the choice. You know, it was so important for me to have the choice. I couldn't give a fig about it now, but back then it was important. So I'm dealing with people who are still in that stage. They're 30 years old and they're hooked on the fact of, what do you mean? I can't drink at my wedding. So I'm saying, look, yes, you can. I'm giving you a freedom pill. This is a pass, but you have to drink mindfully. You have to track your drinks. You have to be accountable. You have to start joining in on the weekly sessions. You have to get a coach. You have to get a therapist. So yeah, you can drink at your wedding. If we work toward that goal, you can drink and actually remember your wedding and not make an ass of yourself at your wedding if you follow the protocol. But if that's so important to her at 30, it might not be important to her at 40. She might be done with drinking. So all I can do is deal with the person in the stage they are right now. And there's a lot of people. This is why nine out of 10 people don't seek treatment is because they're faced with one truth, their truth, which is you got to stop drinking. So if I can get those nine people to understand that they don't have to stop drinking right now, they can unlearn the habit of, of, of misusing it. It's classic harm reduction. So if I can get them through harm reduction, in using this, and then maybe in their 40s and 50s and 60s, they just give it up. And isn't that what we all want is just, just to be free from it, you know? So that's my goal. Yeah, I, I mean, I love that. I love that. And I think, you know, however you get in the door of bettering yourself and coming and, and improving coping skills and getting into a, a meaningful lifestyle, then that's what matters because, you know, I, I, I have to remember sometimes, you know, this gets really intense in the 12 step community, which is like this idea of time and, and, and how, you know, how have you worked this step? Like there's, there's, if you're in a long time, you can get into this, like these almost like rankings in your head. Like they're not, they're not actual rankings, but they're rankings. And, you know, I've, over the years, I've had times where I'm like, I, got into this to save my life and to have a happy, better life. Not like I'm not here to achieve something in this program. I'm only here to achieve what I need to achieve and then give back to the world in whatever way makes sense for me. And when I get back to that, when I remember that, as opposed to getting caught up in ego stuff, right? Because it's, that's the ego. The ego stuff is like, well, where do I rank against you? And am I accepted in this way or that way? And, you know, I think that it's so important to remember, like, we're just trying to live a happy life. That's why we started. You know, I couldn't agree with you more. And I like to use the analogy of dieting. So uh, if you have, this is my classic analogy. If you, Ashley, have two morbidly obese siblings and one of them uses a lap band and loses 150 pounds and she's healthy and happy. And the other one does it with diet and exercise and he's happy and healthy. Do you judge them? Do you care? Okay. You're just happy that they're alive and healthy, right? Right. That's the way I think about recovery is you're, you're exactly right. What you wanted was sobriety. You wanted health. You wanted happiness. I didn't even want sobriety. 
<laughs> okay, you wanted to live. <laughs> I didn't want sobriety. I wanted nothing to do with sobriety. I wanted to stop the pain. Like it was even more primal than that. I just wanted to not be in pain. And, you know, I connected the dots. And that's what you're saying, which is if you want to be thin and I, and for, you know, you know, sibling one, sibling A, connecting the dots. I want to be thin in order to get there. Yeah. I want to be alive. I'm morbidly obese. I want to be alive. I I want to be alive. Okay. Then I need to be thin and I need to do it quickly. Okay. I'm not going to be able to run because I'm morbidly obese. I'm not going to be able to blah, 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 blah. It makes most sense to expedite the process by getting the lap in. Like working backwards from your goals of, I want to live, I don't want to be in pain. And then getting to where you need to go is, I think that, and that's what you're saying, which is like, just work backwards from that. And however you get to where you need to go is fine as long as it's not hurting anybody. And it's best if it includes some sort of support and introspection. Don't you think both siblings will have to relearn what how they feel about food? They can't keep eating their feelings, even if the, the lap band person has to relearn how to eat and what they what how what they were using food for. And the, the one who's dieting and exercise is going to continually have to change their lifestyle. They're going to have to incorporate tons of, of, of fastidiousness about diet and exercise. They're going to have to weigh themselves. And, and if it goes up a couple of pounds, they have to diet again. I mean, it's, so it's, it is, they're both working towards a common goal and it doesn't matter how they get there. If 10 years from now, you look at both your siblings and they're happy and healthy and they're alive and they don't have diabetes, you're going to be okay. Jobs, jobs done. Good for you, but good on both of you. Agreed. Agreed. I think it's just so amazing. The Sinclair method, is that available? If someone's interested in finding out more about Sinclair method, someone's interested, what are the steps? Do they read the book first? Do they walk us through what the... Anybody who is interested to learn about the Sinclair method can go to c3foundation.org. That is my website. And that is the one-stop shopping in the United States for... Uh, you can find a provider. If you would prefer somebody in office, there's a tab that says find a provider right underneath that tab is telemedicine. So if you want to do it on the phone or video, if you want the prescription today, you can choose a telemedicine provider. The entire United States is covered. It's the entire United States. doesn't matter what state you're in. We even have Arkansas finally. So, and Alaska. So there is a provider in every state, every, all of Canada is covered. So, and that we have a sister foundation in Europe, C3 Foundation Europe. So if you're in the UK listening to this or Europe, you can contact them. You go to the website. There are the scientific research there. There's peer support tab there. You can watch the, our recent conference where you see doctors discussing it. You can read The Cure for Alcoholism. You can read my new book, Journeys, which is a comp- compilation of stories from people on the method. You could also for free, if you have Amazon prime, you can watch one little pill, my documentary. And that's a great, I made that for loved ones. So if you want to sit down with your loved one who has a problem, it's less than an hour long, it's free on Amazon prime, or you can rent it at one little pill for $3 and the money goes to C3 foundation. Um, you can buy it as well, but this is a great tool for you to sit down and say, look, here's a method that I really think would work for you. You don't have to quit. You can just, you know, you can take the medication and we can do this together you know, I could say to you, Hey, we're going out. Did you take your pill? You can, you know, or if you're somebody who's suffering and you want to see what, what the science is behind it, you can sit down by yourself and and watch one little pill. My Ted talk is also a good, 
opening line for somebody saying, look, I saw this actress talking about this method and she's, she was on it for a decade and look, it worked for her. Can, can you watch this and let me know if you'll support me in this? You can also go to your GP and say, look, everybody, it's the entire United States is covered by doctors. I don't want to go to a different doctor. I want to go to you. And on my website is a specific tab for doctors. So the doctor can go there and see all of the paperwork, all of the FDA approvals, all of the research and everything in one stop that's specifically for doctors. And they can say, oh, my patient would like to try this method. I want to support them in doing that. So there's a, there, that's really the, the way to, to do it. There's enough information now. Does insurance cover the medication? It does. Yes, it's an FDA-approved, non-addictive, declassified medication that's been approved since 1994 for the use in alcohol alcohol misuse. So, yeah, insurance covers it. I think it's about when I still got it years ago, it was $10 for 30 pills. I know some people that it's free for them. If you were to purchase it and, and pay for it, actually have to pay for it, I think it's still around a dollar a pill, which if you think about it, especially because the more you take it, the less, the more often you take it, the less you're going to end up taking it. Obviously down the line, you might take it once a week. It's certainly worth it. Uh, so for a few hundred dollars, you can really get your drinking under control. It's, it's worth it. Yeah, but that's as huge. I said before, there's, there's comprehensive telemedicine programs. There's companies all throughout the United States that will create a program for you. They have breathalyzers. Uh, we have drink logs that you can download onto your phone for free. There's free peer support. Uh, I mean, it's really, there's a whole community out there of people on TSM now, young and old. So it's not like when I started, when there was nobody in the United States that knew about it or supported it. So right now you're, you're in a really good position to do TSM. Yeah. And we, we also offer a moderation management program and our therapist that runs it is uh, Michelle Perron, who she is just. Oh, a- she's on my coaching page. Yeah. Michelle Perron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she runs. She runs Lion Rock Recovery's uh, moderation management program, and uh, and so and she's just all about. She's all about it and loves it and talks about how many lives it's helped and saved. And really, and there you go. There's a perfect yeah. example of somebody doing it in combination with a therapist. So yeah, it, and, exactly. and it really to, for the accountability, the mindfulness, and to learn all the tools about how to handle triggers. It's it's that's where you get the best outcome by combining the medication with a treatment program, a comprehensive treatment program, as we said, holistic, you know, it's, it's, it's a mind body experience addiction. It's not just, it's not just about popping a pill. It's not just about going to a meeting. You have, you have to do all the whole work around the whole mind and body and heal your brain with diet and supplements. I mean, there's so many things. Exercise is imperative when you're in recovery. Imperative. Yeah. 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 It's huge. Well, I am so grateful for your time and for what you're doing and getting the message out and willing to go and come up against the 12-step community who I'm sure have been a formidable opponent. Oh, Lord. You know what? I, I always ask, I always say, let's just combine forces. Come on, let, give me all your chronic relapsers. Let me send them back to you with no cravings, you know, and, and let's combine it. I mean, you know, it's up to the individual. If you love the camaraderie of AA, that's great. If you want to get rid of your cravings, that you can be on TSM and still attend meetings, you know, because your goal is abstinence. So we can all live and work together. I know yes. that. <laughs> yes. Well, we 
we started, um, and I, I helped write it, um, a program, a peer support program called Community. And it is for people in any type of recovery in any way, shape, or form. It has, a, so it's it's for people who are using, you know, get using Suboxone, using, you know, Sinclair. Yeah, method, I heard about that. Yeah. 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 And so that is, um, and the impetus for that was that I know so many people who, have been shunned in one way or another for not having, you know, the perfect, whatever the perfect recovery is or looks like and have sought out other things and they haven't been robust enough. And so a group of three of us clinicians, people in 12 staff, like we, we took and who are into, you know, all sorts of other things and have been in lots of different programs. We have taken our collective you know, experiences and ideas and put that into something that's like, we don't care what you're doing. The key to recovery is about community, is about creating community, you know, self-reflection, self-care, self-love and being a better person and giving back period. doesn't matter what you're recovering from and you're welcome here. I love that. I'm going to send people to that, to community because, uh, you know, I, I think, I don't care if you used ayahuasca to get better. <laughs> you know, I don't care what, I don't care if you ate grapefruits for a year and you're sober yeah. now. Great. Right. Well, exactly. Exactly. We've yeah. forgotten, I think in, in, you know, treatment purity kind of, we've forgotten, we've become puritanical, which is just, I mean, there's all sorts of jokes there back to, you know, Christian Bible stuff, but that aside, we have forgotten the point we've missed. We've lost the plot. And to help people, right. We got to get back. We got to get <laughs> yeah. back there. Right. We got to get back to like, here's the smorgasbord of things that find what works for you and get exactly. better. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And I appreciate you having me on the show so I could maybe reach those in need that have tried a lot of things and maybe didn't know about this. So I yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. So c3foundation.com or c3.org. Yeah. .org. C3 c3foundation.org. And the three is spelled out. But if they just put Claudia Christian or C3 or this Sinclair method, they'll, they'll find me. Okay. <laughs> they'll find okay. my Ted talk and they'll, one little pill is on Amazon prime for free. We're so. going to put everything in the show notes. So if you are listening and you want to go back and you can't remember any of this stuff, cause you're driving or what have you, it's all in the show notes. That's wonderful. Thank you, Ashley. Appreciate awesome. it. Thanks for being here. I deeply appreciate it. You have a beautiful day and thanks for having me. Thank you. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.